Welcome to all of you once again, and thanks, Marcelo, for reading God's Word to us. If you have been here recently, and I hope you have been here with us recently, you know that we've just returned, restarted our sermon series through the Gospel according to Mark. So in the past couple of weeks, we've been catching up with Mark and, uh, and, with, and with Jesus here in the pages of this gospel. So in the past couple of weeks, what we've seen and heard about is Jesus Christ doing some miraculous things. Like, for instance, miraculously feeding thousands of hungry, tired people because he cared about them. And then shortly after that, his disciples saw him walk across a sea. That is, actually walk on waves Waves that would have drowned you and me, even the strong swimmers amongst us may have been drowned. Maybe you could have swam through it, but you aren't going to walk over it. He marched over those waves, and then he went on to heal many, many other sick people and disabled people. In fact, not only did he just heal them, what, what the scriptures tell us is that as people who were sick and disabled touched, simply touched his clothes, Jesus' clothes, they were healed. And so with each of these miraculous acts, Jesus was showing everyone who saw him a couple of things. He was at the very least showing everyone his limitless compassion and his limitless power. He was showing them that he was, in fact, the long-promised Messiah who the people of Israel had been waiting for for so, so many centuries, who had finally come, and, and, and he had come to establish his kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth. But lots of people didn't recognize him for who he was. That is, they, they saw the miracles, but they missed the point. For example, did you notice that in the passage Marcelo just read to us, there was a group of people in there who stopped Jesus to ask him a question. Not to ask him about who he was and why he was doing the things that he was doing. Not to ask him what his mission was and what he was about. No, instead they stopped him to ask why his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. Strange question, no? The the narrator tells us that it was the Pharisees and the scribes who did this. These were religious scholars. These were teachers and experts. These were so-called holy men. But they, they come off as somewhat clueless here, don't they? They, they come off as, as not being really able to like read the room and read like what matters here. They, they also come off as, as petty. You see, this man, Jesus, had previously cast out demons he had raised a dead girl back to life. And, and, and these scribes and Pharisees knew all this. They had heard about it. That's why they were there, to find out more. But they're so fixated. They're, they're wondering, why, why, why don't Jesus' friends wash their hands before they eat? Fixated on that strange question. It wasn't because they cared about hygiene, by the way. It wasn't about food safety for them. What they cared about was tradition. Tradition. According to the tradition of the elders, you had to wash your hands before you ate, and you had to wash many other things because they were defiled. That means they were ceremonially unclean. It wasn't about bacteria. It was about ceremonial, ritual uncleanness. 
And so this ritual of washing your hands in just the right way, it says there that, they, that the, the Jews would wash their hands properly. That word for properly means in the prescribed way. There was a certain set of steps that had to be followed. And when they did this, it was believed that they were now ritually clean, at least temporarily. So doing this was supposed to make you pure in some way. And so they're asking, why don't your friends wash their hands, Jesus? Do they think they're better than us? Do they think they're pure already? Like, like they're too holy for this? Like, like they don't need to wash their hands? And Jesus takes, took, took the opportunity to teach them and teach everyone present something profound about the human condition. Rather than just overlook this annoying question, he presses into it, as he often does. You see, Jesus knew that his disciples weren't, quote-unquote, too holy to need washing. It wasn't that. On the contrary, what he went on to explain is that there's something deeply, deeply wrong with every person, including his disciples. There's something deeply wrong with all of us. You see, there's something dirty about us. There's something defiled about us. But no ritual or, or compulsive habit can change that. No matter how much we try to erase the stain or get rid of the stench of whatever it is that we know is wrong with us, no matter how hard or long we try to make ourselves pure, we can't do it until someone else makes us clean, until someone else declares us to be pure. You know, many of the world religions have some kind of washing ritual that makes up part of their, 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 their practice. For instance, there's the, the bathing of the Buddha. Some of you may know bathing of Buddha. Since ancient times, this has been going on. Buddhists all over the world have celebrated Buddha's birthday by, by using water, like water that's infused with fragrances, I, I believe, to, to, to wash, to pour over a little statue of the infant Buddha. And, and by washing that image, it symbolizes the cleansing of our own bodies, the cleansing of our own speech, the cleansing of our own thoughts to eradicate anger and greed and everything else that's bad. It's a way to purify our minds by washing this little image. Hindus around the world practice purification rituals that involve bathing, bathing the entire body, especially in, in certain holy rivers like the Ganges. Many Muslims practice what's called wudu. Wudu, it's a, it's a ritual washing in four steps. Wash the face, the arms, wipe the head, then wash the feet, all in that order without any breaks between them in order to purify yourself, to get ready for prayer and worship. So you see, all these religions have something in common. They all happen to have something in common with the tradition of the Pharisees, too. Because all these world religions, this is, represents billions of people around the world, seem to recognize that all of us are somehow defiled. We're defiled by our evil thoughts. We're defiled by our evil words, our wicked actions. And so we need to be cleaned. And notice that Jesus doesn't deny that. When they ask him, why aren't they washing their hands? Jesus doesn't say, oh, you guys are so wrapped up with this cleanliness thing. Don't worry about this defilement stuff. 
He doesn't say stop worrying about being unclean. No, instead what he does is he reframes the whole topic. He redefines what defilement means and what purity means. And in so doing, he shows us at least three things. These are the three things we're going to look at today. The first one is this. Defilement doesn't come from outside, it comes from inside. Defilement doesn't come from outside, but from inside. In other words, defilement, impurity in ourselves is not something that we catch from someone else or catch from something else. No, it's something that we actually produce from deep down inside of us. Look at Mark chapter 7, verse 14. The very end of the section that Marcelo read for us, it says, And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand this, understand it. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Do you remember church less than, I shouldn't smile about this, I don't know why. I, you know, sometimes we joke about things that were very difficult to help us to cope with it. Do you remember less than four years ago, we started taking hand washing a lot more seriously, didn't we? we, we I watched doctors on TV teach me how to wash my hands properly. I tried to teach my kids how to wash their hands properly. Our kids would come home from school and get their clothes off and in the wash as soon as possible. I remember washing my groceries. Did you do this? I remember standing at the front door of my house with Clorox wipes disinfecting boxes of Captain Crunch. I remember being online at Acme back when we had to get online to get into the store. Do you remember this? Queued up just to get into the store, and I'm standing there pushing my car in a line of people, and uh, I'm holding on to that car, no gloves or whatever, just holding on, and, uh, and you know, I've, I'm, I'm trying to, like, stay safe, maintaining distance, mask on. I'm, I'm ready to go in there, shop as quickly as possible, and get back home. And inadvertently, for some reason, I'm standing there, I... I took my hand and I, I rubbed my eye for some reason that I had just been holding this, this cart with. I rubbed my eye and the lady behind me audibly gasped. She said, <gasps> and I looked around and we made eye contact and she looked at me like she was looking at a dead man. And I was looking at her like, oh, I might, this might be it for me. I, and she took a step back. I'm like, oh, what have I done? What have I done? I immediately began praying, Lord, get me home. Get me home. I don't want to die and act me. You see, the tradition of the elders had, had come to see impurity in similar ways, like it was something you could catch, like a virus or bacteria. It, 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 they thought of it in terms of like what you come into contact, you go to the market, and what you come into contact with today may make you ritually unclean. For instance, let's say you, as a Jewish man or woman, you bump into and rub shoulders with a Gentile. Or maybe you inadvertently interact with immoral people. Or you touch some unclean food or unclean product. Or maybe someone that's sick touches you. You don't even realize it. It wasn't about germs. Again, it was about religious ritual impurity. And, and, and becoming unclean through contact somehow would now make you unfit to be in the presence of God. And to be in the presence of God's people. And so you had to go get cleaned up. And what Jesus says to them is that the defilement that really does mark every human doesn't work that way. It actually comes from inside, 
out, not outside in. You see, what makes you and me unfit to be with God, to be in the presence of God, is actually us. It's not something that gets on us that we can just wash off. It comes from inside of us. Jesus gets more specific. Look at what he says in in verse 17 of Mark chapter 7. He explains it this way. It says, and when he had entered the house and he left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. They were asking about what he had just taught regarding impurity coming from inside, not outside. And he says to them, then are, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters from not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. He's, thinking, he's talking here about foods that were considered to be unclean. Because he goes on to say, it says, thus he declared all foods clean. He's saying foods that you put in your body are not going to make you somehow defiled. They may be good for you or bad for you, but they're not going to defile you. Because what happens is they pass through their digestive system and they go away. And so it is with everything else you come into contact with. But from within, he says... I'm sorry, verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Verse 21. For from within, out of the heart, and for Jesus, your heart meant your true you. The core of who you are, out of who you really are, here's what comes out. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things, he says, come from within, and they defile a person. He names 13 defiling sins, and and you get the sense that he could have kept going. Now, in the Western world, I wonder if, um, in this world that we inhabit, I we, we might react negatively to the very concept that we are unclean. We may not like the way that feels to be called unclean. Some of us have been taught that we're just fine, that you're good, you're fine the way you are. So that the, the very message that you're not okay is not okay. We may have been taught to reject the very idea that we are defiled. But if that's the case, what do you do with Jesus' words here? What do you do with his words where he says, out of the heart of a person come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, etc. What do you say to that? Do you think that those things do, in fact, come out of the heart of a person? Have you ever seen them coming out of your own heart? Or do you think that those things only exist in your environment? That they affect you from the outside, but they're not here. They don't exist in here. What would you say to Jesus? Have you not seen in your own heart coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness? Do you see any of that in you? And if you see that in you, would you say it's okay? Like it's there, but it's okay. Or or have these things affected you deeply? Have you felt at times like envy, or pride, or anger, or sexual immorality, or deceit, all manner of, you've seen these things actually affect you, change you, warp you, hurt others through you, hurt you even. 
Have any of these things in your heart ever left you feeling guilty? Have any of these things in your heart ever left you feeling ashamed? So ashamed, in fact, that you hide them, that you don't want to talk to people about your deceit or your pride or your sexual immorality. You, 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 you cover them up. Maybe you try to justify them and rationalize them. Maybe you try to deal with it by lashing out violently towards others or hurting yourself or self-medicating yourself. I would suggest to you that all of those are ways that we try to wash away the defilement. All of those are ways, various ways that we try to make ourselves feel okay. Some of us are wired one way. We, we might try to make up for our failures. We see that evil in us and we try to, to make up for it by, through self-discipline, self-improvement, trying to be better people, eating better, exercising more, reading more, trying to do things to make you feel okay and somehow wash away the shame and the guilt. I wonder if some of you maybe try to go a different route. Maybe you try to forget about your failures. Some of us have tried to forget about our failures, haven't we? Drink them away, smoke them away. But all we're doing is we're choosing our preferred purification ritual. We, we choose a self-cleaning strategy and we keep trying to get clean. I wonder how many self-cleaning strategies would be represented in this room. What's your preferred purification ritual? You see, Jesus saw that is going on here. And, and, and he, he saw it in the Pharisees and in those scribes. They had strategies to clean themselves up. And I believe he sees it in us too. So the second thing he shows us here is that self-cleaning strategies don't work. All right, so first he showed us that defilement comes from inside, not outside. But secondly, he shows us that self-cleaning strategies don't work. And before I even move into that, let me, let me back up for a second. There, I, think, I think this is something to, worth making clear, uh, uh, something I hope you can uh, take away. Um, when I say that evil in us defiles us. I mean it. Jesus said it. I believe it. I think he's, I think he's right. And I think our experience tells us that the, the evil that we've done, the evil that we harbor in our hearts does in fact leave us impure. But I want you to know is that sin committed against you does not defile you. And the reason I mention that is because I think some of us here maybe have had such horrible things done to us in the past. Maybe you've had such horrible things done to you that have left you feeling guilty and ashamed for what you have experienced. Guilty and ashamed and hiding and trying to clean yourself of the result of what has been done to you. And I want you to hear, I think Jesus wants you to hear, to listen, please. The abuse you have endured is their wickedness, not yours. That the ways in which you've been hurt and victimized is their wickedness, their, it's evidence of their impurity, not yours. It's their defilement. You see, 
when Jesus says defilement doesn't come from outside, he means we can't catch it by touching things that are unclean. We also can't catch it by people doing terrible, terrible things to us. We're talking here about our own stuff. And so Jesus shows us that self-cleaning strategies don't work. They don't work. In fact, self-cleaning strategies uh, add to the problem. In fact, you see the traditions of these elders and these Pharisees, it was, like I said, a, a self-cleaning uh, strategy. It, it, was, it was a way for them to make themselves feel okay. It's a, it was a way for them to feel acceptable to God and to others. If I do this washing and I do this thing and I follow these rules, now I'm acceptable to my community and I'm acceptable to God. But look at where it led them. This scene shows us, if we look carefully at it, how self-cleaning strategies actually harm us and warp us. So let's, let's read the first part of the scene again from verse 1, just the first part. It says there, Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly ritually, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked them, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And this is where things escalate. When I, I don't remember the first time I read this, but I think the first time I read this, I probably didn't expect Jesus to respond the way he did. Jesus is so patient. He's gentle. He's lowly, isn't he? But he, he escalates things here. He takes this question very seriously. They're saying, hey, why don't they wash their hands? And Jesus says, well, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? So Jesus leads with you. First of all, you guys are hypocrites for even asking me this question. In fact, when, when Isaiah... 700 years earlier prophesied about hypocrites. He was talking about you guys here today. And he explains what's so hypocritical about what these Pharisees are doing. He quotes from Isaiah who said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Here's what I, I believe this is showing us. Our efforts to make ourselves pure our efforts to, to make ourselves and present ourselves as pure can so often lead us into hypocrisy. It's did it for these Pharisees. It, it led them into hypocrisy. And by hypocrisy, what we mean here is this tendency to, to want to appear to be what you really are not. The word here for hypocrisy that Jesus would have used had to do with kind of putting on a mask. It's what actors do. It's acting. It's, it's play acting. It's pretending to be something you're not. So, this kind of self-cleaning strategies, what is it? When we try to present ourselves as pure to others, pretend that we're, we end up pretending. We end up pretending that we're better than we really are. So rather than admit that we are not okay, we want to present a persona that is fine. Rather than these Pharisees saying, I live with so much shame and guilt, what am I going to do with it? They say, oh, we're fine. We're fine. We're pure. It's a facade, you see, it's a facade. Have you ever seen this in yourself? Have you ever felt like I have to show a version of myself, I'm not even sure if it's real, 
but I got to show this version of myself to the world, whether in church maybe, or in school, or at work with my family. For, for, the, for the Pharisees, it was the facade of holiness. They had to show that they were holy. But for us, it may be any number of different ways that we need to present ourselves to others. Look, I've washed up. I've, I've, I've taken care of my issues. I am clean. I am okay. I am good. Accept me. When deep down we know we're not okay, it leads to a kind of fakeness, a mask wearing, a hypocrisy, Jesus says. He goes on in verse 8. He says, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, he gives a case study here. It's an interesting example. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. This is one of God's commandments. Honor your father and your mother. The penalty for not doing that in Old Testament Israel was very serious. It was not grounding. It was not no video games. It was... You must surely die. In any case, clearly God takes honoring father and mother very seriously. Verse 11, but you say, Pharisees, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. He goes, I've just given you one example, but you guys do this all the time. You're always doing this. And the example he's giving is, it's an interesting one. He's saying uh, in, in Old Testament uh, uh, times, it was, it was explained, Moses explained to the people that you could take your possessions and dedicate them to God and say, this is now Corbin. Corbin meaning this, not, this I don't have ownership over this anymore, whether it's my property, my money, whatever. I'm giving it to the Lord. It was an honorable thing to do, to give what you have to God. What the Pharisees had come and done is they had twisted this, and they had told people, hey, listen, you've got parents. Um, as they get older, you may have to care for them. You may have to provide for them. Um, but here's what you can do. Give all of your money and property to the Lord. Call it Corbin. Give it to the Lord. And God will say, you no longer have any responsibility to care for your parents anymore. You've done an honorable thing. You've given to the Lord. Now, now, notice, the Pharisees, had a re Pharisees and scribes would have had a reason for saying this because if the money is being given to the Lord, quote-unquote, which means being given to the temple or it's been given to your local synagogue, the scribes and Pharisees stood to gain from that, right? They're, 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 they stand to, to, to profit financially from the Corbin. <laughs> and so they would say, give, to the, give it to the synagogue, Give to the temple. And if people would say, yeah, but if I give all this money to the temple and I give it all to, so I'm not going to be able to care for my parents. And, and they would say, it's, it's okay with God. It's okay. It's okay. Give to the Lord. It's righteous. Jesus is calling them out and saying, you've created a tradition for your own personal gain. And, in so, and you've called it pure. You've called it good. And in so doing, You've neglected God's word. You've contradicted and rejected God's word. And they would tell people, if you do this, this is a way for you to make yourself pure. This is a way for you to self-clean. You've messed up in life. You've done a lot of wrong things. Hey, give all your money to the synagogue. Give it to the temple. And God will say, ah, he's clean. 
So you see, the Pharisees, they had prided themselves on, on obedience to God, but in this instance, as in many other instances, although they claimed to take God's words very seriously, ironically, they had actually become very disobedient to God. They had come to reject God's clear commandments in order to bolster up their own traditions, their own self-cleaning traditions. And, and, and they lost their perspective on what really mattered. So Jesus calls them out for it. He says, you rejected what God clearly said in favor of your tradition. And here's the takeaway for us, New Hope. In our efforts to purify ourselves, in our efforts to prove that we are okay, that we are clean, that we're fine, we will often set up standards for ourselves and for others. And these standards are not from Scripture. We, we set up standards for what it means to be a good person, what it means to be a pure person. And in some cases, these are standards that go way beyond what God says in his word, or in some cases, they even contradict what God says in his word. So think about it. Different folks here, different folks in our communities might have different standards for what a good person is, what a pure person is. A good person, some would say, is someone who votes uh, Republican. Some would say, well, a good person is someone who votes Democrat. And in fact, a bad person is a person who votes with the other party. Some would say, no, a good person, a good person is, um, is, is scrupulously affirming of others, um, will always respectfully use people's preferred pronouns. That's what a good person does. And someone else would say, no, 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 that's not what a good person does. What a good person does is, is, is refuses to use those preferred pronouns all the time. Someone say, no, no, well, a good person is a person who um, makes sure to stay up to date with their vaccinations and make sure all their kids are vaccinated. And someone else says, no, 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 a good person doesn't fall for all that. A good person actually makes the opposite decision. You see, we live, frankly, and I, these perhaps are silly examples. Maybe you can come up with better examples. But I really do believe that we live in a nation of Pharisees. Of, I don't know which group of Pharisees is bigger, but Pharisees. And, and in conflict with each other, with conflicting traditions and conflicting self-cleaning strategies. But a nation of moralists, nevertheless. Trying to show that we are pure. In contrast to them, they're not pure. And you see, an added result of all this is that we can end up feeling self-righteous in our own purity, quote-unquote. And we can end up feeling very, very judgmental of others who don't align with our standard, who don't accept our standard for what being good and pure is. And you see in this scene, you see in this, why were the Pharisees and the scribes there in the first place at this dinner party? They were there because they were suspicious. <laughs> They were there because they were protective of their own status, of their own self-cleaning efforts, and they were suspicious and judgmental of this teacher, this prophet who had shown up on the scene. They were there, in fact, plotting to kill him. So all of this, all of this, I believe, is some of what our own self-cleaning strategies will do to us when, when we try hard to make ourselves or to prove ourselves to be okay and acceptable and pure, we become terribly unchristlike. We become condemning, judgmental. We become hypocrites. And we know it doesn't work because it never seems to make us feel okay. Maybe for a little while it does, but not in any lasting way. So many of us often find ourselves wondering, am I really okay? 
Am I really a good person? Or will I, find, be, will I be found out finally to be an awful person? Will, will the defilement of my sins finally be exposed? You see, our self-cleaning strategies will always leave us insecure, terribly insecure. I'm convinced it's why the Pharisees were so concerned about these people. They were always concerned about other people's sins, first of all, but also they were concerned about how these people were operating, how they, they were viewed by these people, and why are these people following Jesus? Why do they like him? Why don't they like us? They were, they were rendered completely insecure. You see, even, even by focusing on the defilement of others, it was a way for them to distract attention from their own defilement. That's why they were so petty and so fixated on people's infractions. And Jesus comes in and he blows up the whole thing. That leads us to the third and final thing that we need to see here. We've seen that defilement comes from the inside. We've seen that self-cleaning efforts, these efforts to try to make ourselves pure don't work. And lastly, we need to see that Jesus loves to clean up defiled people. Jesus loves to clean up defiled people. Um, he doesn't tell us so much in this scene, but, but this, this scene takes place in the greater context of the Gospel of Mark. And we've seen it throughout the Gospel of Mark from, very, from chapter 1 on. Chapter 1, there's a man with an unclean spirit, he's called. A defiled spirit, an evil spirit possesses him. He approaches Jesus, and Jesus casts out the defiled spirit and frees this man, makes him clean. Then later in chapter one, a leper, leper, people with leprosy in this culture were viewed as imminently unclean. Don't touch them, don't get near them. Jesus touches him, heals him, and makes him clean. In chapter two, Jesus approaches a man named Levi, who's a Jewish tax collector, unclean. Dudes like that were completely unclean. And what made it even worse is they were unclean by choice. They decided to become tax collectors. And Jesus says, no, you follow me. You're mine now. And he declares him clean, accepts him. In chapter 5, a possessed man that's living, in the, living among the tombs. Do you remember this? He's living in, 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 the, grave, in the graves of, 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 of dead people. He's possessed by evil spirits. He comes to Jesus and he's restored and he's made clean and he's welcomed back into society. In chapter 5 later, he's touched by a bleeding woman and, and, and um, women who are bleeding, uh, who are menstruating, were, were viewed as unclean in the society. Don't touch them, don't go near them, get away. This woman had a condition in which she could not stop bleeding. It had been years and years, over a decade of suffering. She touches Jesus's robe and she's healed and she's no longer unclean. He declares her to be pure. And then later on in chapter 5, Jesus touches a dead little girl. You know, dead people were unclean. Not supposed to touch dead people. He touches a dead person. Touching death does not make him impure. Touching death makes her alive. She's welcomed back into her family. You see, again and again and again, what happens is contact with Jesus actually purifies you. Jesus has the authority to say, You are okay. 
You're completely okay now. You are clean. And he wants us to see how inadequate our own efforts to make ourselves clean and acceptable are so that we will come to him, so that we'll come to him. I know I use that language a lot about coming to Jesus. I, um, he's not here in, in, in his body, so we can't approach him. What I mean by coming to Jesus, I mean, I mean believing in him, entrusting yourself to him. You know, one of the disciples that was there at this house on this day for this whole interaction was the Apostle John. The Apostle John in 1 John 1 says this. He says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you think you're clean, you're a liar. But if we confess our sins, if we confess our impurity, he is faithful. Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Jesus invites us to actually own up to our uncleanness. He invites, he says, it's safe with me. It's safe for you to admit to me that you're defiled. Come clean and be cleaned. Come clean, air it out. Tell me everything. I will cleanse you. So you might feel put off by a God who says that your sin has left you filthy. You might feel like that's not very affirming or encouraging for God to say that to you, but I, I tell you that it is the height of love that drives God to say, you're not okay. You need to see the grace of God in that. You need to see the love that moves him to, to, to say, I want to expose you to yourself. I want you to see the real you. I saw this family experiment recently where a dad, he sent his two little kids to wash their hands in the kitchen sink, and they washed their hands pretty quick. They, they look, it looked like a thorough job. It was fast, right? Kids tend to wash their hands pretty fast. And they come back out, and the dad shuts off the lights in the kitchen and says, all right, put your hands out on the counter. And he brings out this, this UV lamp, and he shines it on their hands. And what he sees, his hands didn't look so, their hands didn't look so clean, especially the nails. Ooh, it looked nasty. It made me think twice about ever biting my nails again. The nails are so gross. In a sense, what God wants to do, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to encourage you to wash your hands all that much. Frankly, you, you do what you'd like in that regard. What I I'm, what I'm want you to see, what I want us to see is that God's word functions in some ways like that kind of UV lamp, that kind of black light. We may not want to see it, but... If, if what it reveals to us, if the filthiness it reveals to us is keeping us from knowing God and enjoying God and having eternal life, then don't we want to see it and be washed? The gospel motivates us to be honest about where we are. I'm going to end with the words of the Apostle Paul. Actually, I'll, the Apostle Paul in Hebrews, and it will be done. But the Apostle Paul was not, at, the, at this point in Mark chapter 7, he was not a disciple of Jesus yet. He was actually a Pharisee. In fact, he wasn't there as a disciple, but you know it's possible. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's possible that in some of these interactions that Jesus throughout the Gospels has with Pharisees, it might be that the Apostle Paul, then known as Saul, was present. It may very well be that Saul had interactions face-to-face -face with Jesus long before he ever came to trust Jesus. In any case, if Paul were there, he'd be there as a Pharisee, and he'd be asking the question, why, why don't these guys wash their hands? 
But listen to what the Apostle Paul says years later after he comes to believe in the one who's able to cleanse the unclean. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. He's saying, don't lie to yourselves. Don't lie to yourselves. The impure, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will not experience joy and eternal life in God's kingdom. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolatry, that word for sexually immoral means any, people who are practicing any kind of sex, outside, any kind of sexual activity outside of what God endorses and calls good in his word, which is, which is sex within the covenant of a marriage. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And, and, and look what he says in verse, seven, verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. I'm writing to people on this list, he says, but, but you were washed. You were sanctified. That means you were set apart. You were justified. It means you were declared innocent, guiltless, and made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What he's saying here is saying some of you were on this list. But God changed that. Yes, you have a changed life now. Now you're not living in sexual immorality. You're not committing adultery anymore. You're not just deceiving people. You're not an idolater anymore. You're not thief. You're not greedy anymore the way you used to be. But really, he's not just saying you're changed people. He's saying you're actually a cleansed people. Yes, there is a change of life that's taken place, and it gives evidence of the fact that you've been washed. But you still commit some of these sins, don't you? You still fail. But here's the difference between now and then. You have been forgiven. You have been cleaned. You are no longer defiled. You know, the, the hand-washing traditions of the elders, they didn't come from nowhere. They actually had their roots in God's word. God never said that everyone needs to wash their hands a certain way before they eat. But what God did do, hundreds of years before Christ, God had commanded his people to observe an annual day of atonement. Familiar with Yom Kippur, right? Yom Kippur was a day on which the sins and the impurity of the God's people would be symbolically paid for. And they would be wiped away through, through a ritual in the temple, through a sacrifice in the temple. And so, so let me describe this to you a little bit, and then I'll stop. Let me just describe this to you. On the day of atonement, the high priest, he would go into the holiest part of the temple to perform a sacrifice. But before he could go into the holiest part of the temple, he had to do some rigorous preparation. A week beforehand, a week before the day of Yom Kippur, he had to go into seclusion, completely alone. And he'd have to go through these, the, a series of, of ritual washings, washings. And then, and then the night of Yom Kippur, the night before Yom Kippur, he would stay up all night. The priest would pray all night, read God's word all night to get ready for the next day. And then on the day of atonement, he would bathe head to toe. And then he'd put on a linen robe. He'd be dressed in a pure, white, brand new linen outfit, and then he'd go into the holiest of holies, and he would sacrifice an animal. But that first animal sacrifice was for his own sins, because he was a sinner. He was, undefiled, he was defiled like the rest of us. 
So he'd come out and he'd bathe again, head to toe, and then put on a new linen suit and go once again, go into the holiest of holies, and this time sacrifice another animal. And this time it was for the sins of all the priests of Israel because they were sinners too. They were defiled too. And then after that second sacrifice, he'd go out and wash all over again, put on one more pure white linen suit and go back into the holiest of holies this time to perform one final sacrifice for the people of Israel. I say final, but he'd have to do it again next year. And he'd have to do it again next year. And every year that he served as high priest. And when he went in there, you know, all the people of Israel would, would crowd into the outer parts of the temple People would be watching and cheering. Cheering for him. Cheering for the fact that their sins were being atoned for. It was a happy day in some ways. And so the Pharisees and scribes had taken this tradition. They had kind of warped it. They had made it into something else. They said, you know, it's not enough for the high priest to have to wash like this. All of us should be washing every day. Keep ourselves pure. And Jesus was not a fan of this tradition, as you can tell. But all of those Old Testament rituals that I just explained to you from, from about the high priest, they all, they all were meant to be teaching tools. They were all meant to show God's people how serious sin is, how defiling sin is. They were meant to teach us about the gravity of sin, but also the grace of God. And all of it was meant finally to point ahead to another priest who would come, a priest named Jesus. And, and the book of Hebrews, it connects the dots for us because it tells us there that when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered not once a year, but once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. You know, Jesus stayed up the night before his sacrifice too, all night. He was alone too in prayer. And when time came for his crucifixion, unlike the Old Testament high priest, he wasn't dressed in clean white linen. He was stripped, and he was shamed, and he was surrounded by crowds, but they weren't cheering for him. They were cheering for his death. They were mocking him, and he did this all for us, to wash us clean and to make us pure, to bring you to God. New hope. We have so many different ways to try to make ourselves clean and make ourselves okay. God has one way to make us clean and make us okay. And he asks us, which one would you choose? Which one will you choose? Let's go to Jesus. Let's go to Jesus and find purity that will stand the test of time, that will stand the test of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that your word shows us ourselves, but doesn't stop there. It shows us your grace in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I ask, Lord, that you'd give us the wherewithal, the grace we need to put aside any efforts to make ourselves okay or to prove that we're okay and throw ourselves completely at the mercy of Jesus who died to make us pure. Oh, Lord, we pray that everyone in this building, everyone in this room, everyone in our families, would experience the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen.